0: We have a time specifically set aside and designed for uh, worship for the children, teaching them how to abandon themselves to the true and the living God. For the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 7. Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless... We can drop that just a touch to be helpful. Thanks. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you so much. We are grateful for the privilege of being able to gather here as your people today to worship you to bow down our hearts, to abandon ourselves fully over to you, Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that you are good and that you deserve all such worship. Thank you also for your word, for your word reveals to us who you are, our God, and reveals to us how you would have us to live. We pray that you'd open up our hearts to understand both, that we would know you better and that we would live for your glory in all that we say and do. Father, we pray for our children, the little ones who are in children's worship, We thank you for the opportunity that we have to disciple these, our children. And Father, as we have been reading about your covenant, we're reminded of the covenant promise that you made to our father Abraham, that you said that you would be his God and the God of his descendants after him. And we, as your descendants, receive that promise. And we plead with you, O God, that you would indeed be the God of our children. And that you would draw them to yourself. And that you would give them a true and a lively faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ. For each one of us, O God, today, grant that your spirit would take over. We give ourselves to you and we ask that you would change us. Would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen. So, in, in my family, I'm a little bit of the odd individual. You're saying it's beyond your family, Pastor. But anyway, um, but I'm surrounded by all these people that have these musical skills and skills, uh, artistic skills. And, and one of the things I really enjoy doing, forgive me, I'm going to drop this just a little bit, is watching them do that. And in particular, I love watching Robin. I love watching her paint it's, it, or draw either one, and usually they go somewhat together. And, and uh, it was, was it last summer, I think, that we were up at Sprague Lake at Rocky Mountain National Park, and we had an opportunity. I think there should be a slide. that This is, this is Robin. As we were up at this lake, and we're looking at the mountains, and, and you can see down at the bottom uh, her recreation of those mountains as she was just painting. And, and I just love to sit there and watch her do that. And I'm always amazed because, you know, she actually starts out with like a blank piece of paper, See, that's what's amazing. I could have it one of those that you color it in, and it wouldn't look very good. But but she even starts out, and it's a blank piece of paper. And I watch her, and I'm thinking this frequently when I watch. It's like, what's she going to do? Where do you start, right? I'm the kind of guy, well, you start top left, right? Unless it's Hebrew, then it's going to be top right. But either way, you've, you've got that spot. You're going to start there, and that's, what you, that's where you begin. But it doesn't work that way. And all of a sudden, she starts kind of in the middle and draws something. It's like... Really? And you're gonna, and it builds from there, and all of a sudden it becomes this, this beautiful uh, piece of art. And when I watch her, I also notice that she, she's confident. She has the paper, she has the brush, she has her pen, whatever she's going to do, and she just goes right into it, no doubts, no question. just boom, there it is. And she begins to work on the painting, confident that I know what I'm doing, I know where this is going, and she goes there. It's that confidence that I want us to be thinking about as we look at this passage. Because I think it's confidence is one of the struggles that the Jewish believers had. Remember the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers, that these are individuals who grew up under the old administration of the covenant of grace. They grew up as Jews and they became Christians. And then they found themselves in this intercovenant time, in this transition period to where how do we worship God? We've worshiped God our whole lives and, and for generations we go into the temple and, and we offer the sacrifices and, and now we don't do that and, and, and now we've got this, this, instead of Passover, we've got this uh, uh, Lord's Supper that we celebrate and, but, but shouldn't we still be doing the other laws as well? And, and they find themselves pulled and it was a, a pressure on them to forget about the new covenant and just go back to what's comfortable, to just go back to what they know you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? That's really what pulls us all the time, too. And and kids, you can grow up in the church, and it's easy for you to just stay in what's comfortable and not necessarily have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the call of this is, is to pursue that relationship with Christ. And the, the call to these Jewish believers was for them to find confidence in the New Covenant. Because under the old covenant, there was also some level of uncertainty, as they were always um, uncertain in the old administration of the covenant of grace. They, they weren't exactly sure what to do with it, and it wasn't always the certainty and the security of, of who they were. And so the author is saying, come on, find confidence in the new covenant. And that same call comes to us. And and I want us to look at the basis of that confidence today, because I think the author gives us three Bases of, of confidence in the new covenant, and the first is in the new covenant, God's spirit is in you. Um, God's spirit is in you. Now, that's not a strange statement, right? You've heard it before. It's it's like oh yeah yeah yeah, God's spirit's in me. All right 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 right. But what does that even mean? God's spirit is in you. It's a little bit like if I were to say to you that you have a soul, you'd say okay yeah. But what does that mean? What, what does it mean that I have a soul? So what? Okay, I've got a soul. What, I, I, I can't feel my soul, right? Most of the time I live my life completely and utterly unaware of the reality of my soul. It, it never comes into my mind. I, I don't think about it. I, I, what in the world does a soul do anyway, right? I mean, I'm more, more familiar with the sole of my foot, but mostly because it hurts. Um, but, but what is a soul? What does it do? Well, the same is true. What does the Holy Spirit do in you? Okay, so the Holy Spirit's in me, but what does he do? It's, it's this nebulous idea that's, that's in our mind, and, and, and we don't always take the time to consider the significance of it. So I want us to do that. I want us to, to sit down and, and rest and look at what it means that his spirit is in you. His spirit is in you and he's making you holy. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The one who puts those laws into our mind, the one who writes that law upon our heart, is the spirit of God. He's the one who is doing that. And we see that in particular as we look at Ezekiel chapter Uh, 36 talks about that in verses 24 through 26 that you can you can read about the spirit doing that we're going to look at that a a little bit later but just with that reminder that it's the spirit who writes the laws upon our hearts it's the spirit who allows us to understand and to know the, the the laws of god and think about the importance of those laws and having them inside us we see that in psalm 119 verse 9 the psalmist david asks the question how can a young man keep his way pure And he answers, by keeping it according to thy word. And in verse 11 he says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. The writing of the laws upon our heart by the Spirit of God is done so to promote holiness in our lives, to make us holy men and women and children. This is what he's doing. How does he do that? There are four passages I want to look at that will show us how the Holy Spirit makes us holy, which shouldn't surprise us, right? I remember the first time that dawned on me, I was being examined, uh, I think, to become a ruling elder, and the, the question was, discuss the, uh, what does the Holy Spirit do in your life? And immediately, my first thought was, well, what's his first name? Holy, I think that's what he does, first off, is he makes me holy, right? That's, that's what he's going to be doing, because that's what he's all about, is that's uh, uh, so important to him, and he does it in, in four ways in particular. The first is seen in, in John chapter 14, and verse 26 is Jesus in the upper room. By the way, we're going to look at a, uh, this, this upper room discourse a few times, and I just want to give a, a little bit of a heads up. I'm, I'm really, and pray for me about this. I'm, I'm really thinking about this for the possibility of, of next year's uh, preaching theme, as I, I usually work the first part of the year thinking that through. And more and more I'm landing on this idea of spending a, a great deal of time in, in chapter uh, 14, maybe through 19, and, and the last day of Jesus' life on earth. And thinking about it from the standpoint of intimacy with Jesus, as he has these intimate dealings with his disciples during that time. So this is within that context that we read these words in in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus uh, then answered. um, Nope, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I think it's really impacted John as he was aware of this promise that, that Jesus is saying to the apostles. But it's a promise that also, I think, conveys to us that the Holy Spirit will teach us. That's one of the first things that he's going to do in our lives is he's going to teach us. He's going to be the one who instructs us. And it's so important to John that even later on uh, in First John, John talks about the fact that we don't necessarily need... Teachers, if you will, because the Holy Spirit does that. He is the one who instructs us. And so that's one of the ways in which the Spirit works with us. Have you ever had a time in which you're, you're looking at a passage of Scripture and you've looked at it many, many times and all of a sudden... It's like your eyes are open and you understand it for the first time. That idea of, of illumination when we come to understand. It. I've shared this uh, several times at the passage from Second uh, Corinthians that says for momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. And I saw that for years and years and years and I could not figure out how light afflicted us. I, I kid you not. I could not get my brain around weight. And it's like, oh, oh, oh. And I remember when the Spirit just opened up my eyes and he allowed me to understand. You see, that's, that's the work of the Spirit in our lives, giving us understanding, teaching us the things that, that God has shown us in his word. The second way in which he works in our lives, that uh, he shows what he's doing, is in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I said that we were going to come back to this passage. In Ezekiel 36, verse 27 he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to cause us to walk in his statutes. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to promote obedience in our lives. That's one of the things that he's done. Again, you've experienced this in your life. When you come up against a temptation, an opportunity to do something that's just not right, and you find the spirit poking you, Right? And you're like, maybe I ought not. Right? Now, some of us are just really, really gifted that, like, uh, I can resist that poke, right? <laughs> but others of you are very sensitive to that poke. But regardless, He's working in each of our lives and He's promoting holiness, He's promoting obedience in our lives. The third way in which He, he works in our life, that He makes us holy, is seen in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. In Acts 1 8, we spend a lot of time on the, the end of it. We, we look at it, and you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the work, world. And yes, that's what the Spirit's going to do, but you remember where it starts. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive power. And we've talked about power in different contexts uh, within this congregation, and recognizing that there's a, there's a power that's greater than the power that I receive from the food that I eat and the exercise that I do. There is a power that is a spiritual power. There is a power that is, that is known only from that perspective. It's the power that Jesus talks about when the woman touched his garment and he said, who touched me? For I felt power go out of me. There is a strength, there is a power that the Spirit of God gives us that takes us beyond what we would normally think that we're capable of. That undergirds all the other power, if you will. And this is what the Spirit is doing in your life. He is teaching you, he's promoting obedience, he's empowering you and he intercedes for you. In Romans chapter eight, verse twenty six, In the same way the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of this what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know about you, but I think of this often when I'm leading congregational prayer, and Darrell, probably comes to your mind too. It's like, uh, we've got this list and we're praying for this list, but we don't even know what we need. We, we don't even have a clue. And so the Spirit intercedes. The Spirit takes our prayer and goes beyond that. The Spirit is continually interceding with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Father on your behalf. He recognizes the temptations that you face. He recognizes the tribulations that you live through. He recognizes the struggles. He sees all of that. And he intercedes. Do you remember that Jesus told Peter at one time? Peter, tonight that the devil has asked to sift you like wheat, but take courage. Why? I prayed for you. Oh my. And this is our promise that the Spirit is praying for you continually interceding. What is the Spirit doing in our life? He's making you holy. How is He doing that? He's teaching you. He's promoting obedience. He's empowering you. And He intercedes for you. Therefore, be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And I marked my page wrong. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit. And he goes on and he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And I read the rest of that because where we're going to go. First off, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is always interesting. It's a passive command. I just find that hilarious. It's like, (laughs) okay. So I want you, you got to go do this passive thing that you don't do, but it's done to you. And it's a matter of, of relinquishing myself to the Spirit. It's, it's allowing Him to have control in my life. It's, it's much as one man said, it's, it's, it's like the way that a glove allows itself to be filled with your hand. And it is the hand then that uses the glove the way the hand wants to use the glove. He uses it in juxtaposition with being filled with wine. Don't get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. And when we analyze the two and we recognize the way that that alcohol can control our thinking, it control our reflexes, it control the way that we see, it can control the way that we speak, it control our balance. He says, yes, yes it can. But don't let alcohol do that. Instead, let the Spirit of God control the way that you think, control the way that you speak, control the way that you see, control your balance and your reflexes. Let it be in complete control of you. Not some other substance. But the Spirit is to do that. How do I get filled with the Spirit Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness to God in your hearts. Does that sound familiar? You see what he's done? Is He's taken, what does it mean when you're filled with the Spirit? And what does it mean if the word of Christ richly dwells in you? And he says they're the exact same thing. So how am I going to be filled with the Spirit? By letting the Word of God, richly dwell inside me. By spending time in God's Word, not just to spend time in God's Word, not just to know God's Word, but to allow God's Word to completely permeate my life and to control my life. That I'm going to live my life according to the Word of God, which, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit is writing on my heart, which, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit is promoting obedience. You get the point? This is what that Spirit is doing inside of you right now. He's making you holy, and he won't let you go. Go back to our passage in Hebrews 8 and look at verse 9. He has this, this relationship between the two covenants that he's talking about. We can even go back a little bit farther he says, for the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Verse 9, he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. And then in verse 13, he says, a, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. You see how he's, he's talking about the, the old is being done away with and the new is come. And he's, he's comparing these two. And he says, it's not like the old one. Not like the one, as he says in verse 9, that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. He says it's not going to be like that one where they didn't continue in it. It's not going to be like that one that was imperfect. It's not going to be like that one where they resisted me and were able to, to not walk with me. No, 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 no. This new covenant won't be like that. You see, in this new covenant... He's not going to let you go. This new covenant, if you will, is going to be effectual. It's going to be able to accomplish the reason that it's given. It's going to work in our lives. This is the promise that he's giving us in this passage. He won't let you go. The Spirit is the one who keeps us in that new covenant. Doesn't it seem like maybe it was the Spirit then? when many of the disciples that were, 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 were walking away from Jesus, and he looks to the twelve, and he says, Are you going to leave me too? And it just sounds to me a lot like the Holy Spirit that put it into Peter's heart. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? That's the Spirit saying those words. The Spirit reminding him of this reality. Where would we go in John chapter 10? We have this just magnificent statement of Jesus about God's determination to not let us go. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I still think it was Dean Miller who first shared this in a Sunday school class, and I just love the imagery. Notice that Jesus says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? The Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who says, No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, My Father is even greater. And no one will snatch him out of my Father's hand. And the Father's hand, which is surrounding the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, and I and the Father are one. Oh my. Does that sound secure? Does that sound hopeful? That's the promise of the new covenant. He's saying to these Jewish believers who've lived their life under the old administration of the covenant of grace, he says, but look, but look in the new covenant. Look what you have. He says, I'm not going to have a covenant like that old one where they walked away. This is one, this is one in which Jesus will hold you and his father will hold you and you are not ever going to lose. I will always hold you. You will not, he will not let you go. We can be confident. We can be confident that God's Spirit is in us. He's in us, making us holy, and He will not let us go. That sounds like a basis of confidence, doesn't it? The second basis for confidence is to draw close to God. And as I draw close to Him, I have that confidence. Think about how we think of God. And and, and within the church, and, and definitely within the, the old administration of the Covenant of Grace, the perspective of God is is to 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 focus on God's greatness and his power, right? And to see him surrounded by lesser beings continually praising his greatness. And that's, and that's valid. I mean, that's what we see in, in Isaiah chapter 6, that we see in Revelation, and, and, and that's true. But there's something else that I want us to become aware of as, as we look at this. As a matter of fact, you get, you get various books, and some of the books that uh, I first read when I first became a Christian come to my mind as, as, as uh, speaking to this. Uh, J. Gresham Machen uh, wrote uh, God Transcendent, Right? And just speaks of, of God and his, his greatness. And, and then uh, many of you have probably read R.C. Sproul's, The Holiness of God, right? And the emphasis on God is just so unlike us, so, so different, so distant, so, so other. And then I read uh, books like Gleanings in the Godhead, which is uh, A.W. Pink's look at the attributes of God. And in all of those, his emphasis is, is always on the magnificence of God. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's something that we need to have. And then there, there are books like uh, Francis Schaeffer, and, and you know me, Schaeffer is one of my favorite authors, the God who is there. He's there. He's not here. And you see, sometimes we can, we can emphasize the transcendence of God and we can miss something of the magnificence of the new covenant. That in the new covenant... There is a promise of his nearness. That was in the old as well. We see it there. Think about creation. God creates Adam and immediately is face to face with him. Right? Adam is the breath of God is breathed into his nostrils and he comes alive and God's face is in his face right there. Because God wanted him to know, I made you for this intimate relationship. And when he makes the woman, he doesn't just say, oh, dust, become a a, a woman, or rib, become a woman. No, he takes the rib from man's side, and he, by his own hand, fashions the rib into the woman. That she might know that she always has that, that intimate relationship with God. And then he speaks to both of them tenderly. First of all, blessing them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And he tells them that they, he's given them all of this wonderful gift. And he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. The tenderness of God's words. Spoken there. All of a sudden we see something else. The Jewish believers like us focused almost exclusively on the magnificence of God and didn't spend very much time on the nearness of God. The beauty of the Christian faith is we have both. The beauty of the new covenant is the emphasis upon both. That he's not just the God out there. He's the God who is here too. So to draw close to God, I need to believe... That he wants me. Believe that he wants you. Look at uh, uh, verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. We read that a lot. Sometimes we don't meditate upon what that really, really means. That God wants this intimacy of a relationship with us. I'm going to look at a a number of passages. I just want to walk through so that we see the the testimony of Scripture on this beautiful promise of the new covenant that God wants to have an intimate relationship with us, that God wants you individually. In uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. This is the the, the beauty of this promise. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God, he says. In Jeremiah chapter 24, he speaks again of, of this similar promise. Chapter 24, verse 7. I will give them a heart to know me For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Do you see the tenderness of that? Do you see the closeness of that? That God God wants us to know Him, Him who is all blessedness. He wants us to know Him, to have that relationship with Him. Not to know about Him, not to be familiar with His name, Oh, we've heard about you, but to know Him that we would come to Him and that we would pursue Him with all of our heart. And then one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. He says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, and will no longer call me Ba'ali. Now, it's kind of a problem that this wasn't translated, but they just transliterated. Because it's not very romantic to call someone Ishi, right? Right? Sounds a little fishy. And Ba'ali, what is that? But you see, what Ishi means is my husband. And what Ba'ali means is my Lord. Now look at that. You will call me my husband and will no longer call me my Lord. Now does that mean that God isn't our Lord? No, 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 no. But even in the Old Testament, he was hinting at and he was saying that there's a day is going to come. The new covenant is going to come. And what is going to be the beauty of the new covenant is we will be the bride of Christ. And doesn't that mean something? Wasn't that term for the church chosen on purpose by God? To communicate an intimacy between between the church and God, between the individual believer and the Lord Jesus Christ? that we will no longer call him Baali, my Lord, but we will call him Ishi, my husband, my beloved, that there will be this intimacy of relationship. Jesus hints at this in the upper room on his final night upon the earth. And and he begins to to hint at it in in chapter 15, the first five verses, as he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In these five verses, he's talking about that close relationship in the new covenant that we have with Jesus Christ. We're able to be near him. We're able to abide in him, to dwell in him, to live in him, to remain in him, that we continually are, 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 are given our, our, our life from him and power for living and that's a beautiful thing but he takes it another step in verses 14 and 15 he says you are my friends if you do what i command you no longer do i call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but i've called you friends for all things that i've heard from my father i've made known to you he ramps it up doesn't he I'd love to be a slave of God. That'd be the greatest. Except that he wants me instead to be his friend. He wants that closer relationship. He wants that nearness with us. Mark chapter 3 is just another passage that reminds us of this and the, the way that the Spirit chose to word this. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. Rich Mullins points out a a big difference between being used by God and being wanted by God. He said you can easily say that Pontius Pilate was used by God, right? Herod was used by God. Pharaoh was used by God. But none of them were very good people. But he wants you. And so he calls you to recognize that God has a desire for a relationship with you, his people. This is the beauty of the new administration of the covenant of grace is this takes center stage. This becomes central. This becomes the focal point of the covenant that he wants you believe that he wants you. I want to ask you just a moment to enter into that story that I've just gone through of this, all of these these passages of Scripture. Do you recognize that He made you individually and specifically? He chose your entire genetic line. We've recently done one of these DNA testing things and trying to understand some of my my uh, past. And what's funny is actually turned out better than I thought it would. Uh, I was a little concerned, but. Uh, there, there is some Scotch-Irish, so at least that. I, I was pretty sure with my nose that would be the case. But uh, nonetheless, we, we found that out. And it was just interesting to see. And the realization, you know, as I'm looking at my descendants from the uh, early part of the 19th century back in North Carolina, God chose them. And as I look at that family tree, and God chose exactly what genetic structure would come from each of them into me, one of my brothers took it as well, and he has a, a different focal point of his, uh, his, his tree as far as his genetics go more uh, to uh, other parts of Europe. And it's interesting because, because God causes just certain parts of the genetic structure to be passed to each individual. But he does that on purpose, you see, because it's making you into the purpose in that you are. He made you. But He not only made you, He chose you before the foundation of the world by name. He wrote your name in the book of life. And then there was a point in your life in which He called you. In which He said, come to me. And you heard that call, and that call awakened you in faith, and you responded to that call. Now, Some of you, maybe that call is today that you recognize that you're being awakened and you're saying, oh, wait, wait, is God calling me? Yes, he is today. He's calling you to put your trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that he has died for your sins and to come to him this day. He made you, he chose you, he called you, he saved you. Jesus died for your sins and he will protect you. He will never let you go. Why? Why would he do that? Because he wants you. Because he wants you. Not he wants y'all, or all y'all, if I go back to my North Carolina roots. But he wants you as an individual to be his. Therefore, get to know him. Again, back in our passage in Hebrews, He says, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. All will know me. How do I know him? Well, first of all, I've got to understand, the Bible is not an owner's manual. The Bible is not um, a recipe for life. The Bible is a revelation of the true and the living God, first and foremost. He reveals himself here. If you want to know him, you know him here. You search the scriptures. You get to know him. You see how he acts. You see what he values. You see what he does. You see who he describes himself to be. You know him through the scripture. But you also then become aware of his presence and activity. I think in knowing God, I begin to recognize that he's among us. He's working in my life. He's doing stuff. And as I get to know him, I get to recognize when that happens. Oh, that was, it was what in the 90s used to be the thing you'd say, that was a God thing, right? That's not a bad thing to say. To begin to recognize that there are certain things that God does, that it's just him. And everybody will try to explain it in another way, but it was him. And we can begin to see that by faith. And then to value what he values. What is it that's important to God? Well, you are. So draw close to him. As you draw close to God, it provides you with amazing confidence when you believe that he wants you and that you get to know him. So the the three bases are, first of all, that God's spirit is in you. You can have confidence. You draw close to God and you can have confidence. And finally, you are forgiven. You can have confidence. You know, in the old covenant, they were always looking forward to a coming sacrifice. They were aware that the, the sacrifice of this bull or this goat, that wasn't sufficient. We need something more. We're looking for that one. We'd have the day of atonement, but we're looking for the real day of atonement. We knew that there was something more. We knew that this wasn't quite it. But in the New Covenant, the New Covenant didn't even begin until that sacrifice had already been offered up. So we can always look back and say, that's the sacrifice. That's the certainty. That's the confidence that I have. It's done. It's not, I hope it'll be done. It has been done. And therefore, my forgiveness is a fact. Your sins are all gone. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins. No more. Your sins are all gone. Isn't that kind of the heart of Christianity? I remember being in an environment one time where um, I was with someone else and, and each of us were supposed to share the gospel and we had a, a pretend witnessing opportunity and, and so we're talking in this situation, both of us to sort of share the gospel and uh, it was interesting, the, the difference, as I listened to the individual share the gospel about how, don't you believe that your life would be richer if God were in it? And that was the full extent. It was never a mention of sin. It was never a mention of the cross. It was never a mention of forgiveness. And I thought, hmm, that's not how I understand the message of Christianity. I don't know that the message of Christianity is about us having a fuller life, is it? The message of Christianity is I'm alienated from the true and the living God who is the source of all life, and I have to be reconciled to him, and the only way to be reconciled to him is through Jesus Christ who has died for my sins. The other side of that is, you who are believers, he died for your sins. You know how many of them? Yeah, yeah, thank you. If we weren't Presbyterian, there would have been some, a little bit more uh, enthusiastic recognition. You all wouldn't have waited for me, right? Amen? Yeah, because he died for all of them, and by all, I mean all, all, right? All. Not just all, but all, 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 all. Am I I getting my point across at all? Okay, yeah, we got it. Good, good, good. I just want to be sure that I'm connecting on this because I want to be clear that all of your sins are all gone. They are taken away, completely removed. He does not remember them. Before I became a Christian, I believed in reincarnation. And the one thing about reincarnation is there's no such thing as forgiveness. It doesn't exist. You have to work off every sin that you ever commit. Every one of them, always. There is no forgiveness, ever. Because forgiveness would break the balance of the karma. Can't have that. And I remember going into a PCA church in July of 1982 and hearing the preacher mention Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And I said, I have never heard of that before. That was utterly and completely foreign to my entire understanding of life. And it lit a fire that became the basis of me becoming a believer just six months later five months anyway because of the power of that message are your sins forgiven Um, put your trust in Jesus and then know that you're a saint you've heard me harp on this at different times the idea that you are a saint I love Psalm 16 verse 3 some of you have seen it at different times in your birthday cards right Psalm 16 3 because this is what I think of you as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The saints. Who's he talking about? Billy Graham? R.C. Sproul? Yeah, yeah. And you. Same par. You are the saints of God. You are the holy ones. And the word that's translated as saint there. There's a word that means to be pronounced clean. I like that a lot. I like the idea of standing before the God who said, let there be light, and he looked at me and said, you are clean. That's comforting. Back to Romans 8. We looked at this earlier. Verse 26, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know what this tells me? He intercedes for the saints. This idea that saints are perfect people is completely outside of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's interceding for saints, which means the saints need intercession. They're not perfect. They still need the the, the Spirit to be praying for them, and so he does. And that gives a level of comfort. See, you belong fully to God. Be confident in your forgiveness, because your sins are all gone, and you are a saint. I read a story this week of a painter who had painted a, a, a painting of roses. It was a small painting. And as he got done, he and, and every critic who looked at it and everyone who saw it said, that is, that is virtually a perfect painting. They could find nothing that was a flaw in that painting. It was just exquisite. And many people offered to buy it from him, and the painter said, no, I will never sell that one. Instead, he would keep it to the side. And as he would go through his career, there were times in which he would have doubts. He'd have uncertainty. He was unsure as to his abilities. And he would pull out that painting and he'd say, I painted this. I can can keep going. And he'd find confidence from that. Well, I think that, that we have times of doubt, don't we? Doubts come into our lives. We wonder, you know, is this real? Am I really His? I'm unsure. I question. And it's at times like that that we need to stop and look at the new covenant, like the author of Hebrews had these Jewish believers stop and look at the new covenant. And as I look at that new covenant, I can find confidence in the new covenant, knowing that God's Spirit is in me, knowing that I can draw close to God, that I am forgiven. I pray for you and me that we can all find that confidence. Let's pray. Lord, you're awesome. You're so magnificent that your magnificence is not detracted in any way by being close to us. But instead, you lift us up to more than we could be on our own. Thank you, O God. I pray for us as we move forward in this life, as we face difficult times. I pray that you'll help us to walk in confidence, knowing the blessings of the new covenant. And will you do this for Jesus?